It says this. While they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the, the temple, sorry, while they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by the way, and whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem that we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread to further among the people, let's threaten them against them speaking into anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, we'll let you decide that one. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. Lord, again, we ask you, open up your word to us today. Lord, strengthen our weak knees. Strengthen our voices to speak. Strengthen our feet to take the gospel into this world. Strengthen, God, our faith and our resolve to be steadfast, faithful, loyal, and allegiant to your holy name, to your kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Teach us this morning. Strengthen us this morning. Give us courage and help us to conquer. In Jesus' name, for it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you guys ever heard the uh, the phrase, "Oh, his goose is cooked"? Right, stick a fork in me. The the phrase, "His goose is cooked." Want to know where that comes from? Well, here we go. You're going to learn. There was a guy named John Wycliffe back in the 14th century who was a scholar and a and a, and a minister in the Catholic Church, um, and so he, and he 
was re, you know, he, he studied and became a, you know, got a bachelor's degree and then a master's degree. And then he went to study the scriptures and earned his doctorate. But he studied the Bible. He loved the Bible. And he was like, man, this is so different than what the church is teaching. What do I do? So he went to Prague, <laughs> to the Czech Republic. And he started preaching. He started preaching the gospel of the Bible. He started preaching the Bible, which is unheard of because they don't do that in the Catholic Church. And, and then he, started, he, he preached in the University of Prague. But not only that, he went so far as to translate the Bible into English because it was the common language. It was what the people were speaking. And that was a no, big no-no because he felt that there was salvation outside the Catholic Church, which is also a big no, no. If you know anything about the Catholic doctrine then and still today, that there is no salvation outside the Catholic Church. It is the church. There is no salvation outside the official recognized blessing of the Catholic Church. And Wycliffe was saying, that's garbage. That's nowhere in the Bible. They added that later. And it's even a counter to the gospel that by faith we are saved. By grace we are faith. We are, we are saved. And so he's, he was preaching against it. So he translated the Bible because he felt that if people could read the Bible for themselves, they would experience and encounter Jesus. They would encounter the God of the Bible, of the church, the true Messiah. And they couldn't, they couldn't argue with him. And he kind of stayed under the radar for, for, most, for the most part. But you can actually read his translation today. You know that? It's called the Wycliffe Bible. And it's also now Wycliffe Publishers that publish Bibles. So some of your Bibles might even have Wycliffe on the, on the stem, on the, on, the, on the thing because of Wycliffe Publishers. Bible Gateway has, I, think, I believe, uh, Bible Gateway has it, if you want to read it. Which was 200 years before the King James, by the way. So this translation in English was, the, was one of the very first. Um, and then you have the Geneva Bible after that, but that's another story. But... <laughs> And then, so he, he, he lived a long life and died in his 60s. But he had a disciple, and his name was John Huss. John Huss was a, was a disciple of him, and he preached in, in the University of Prague. Also got his bachelor's and his master's, and then a doctorate reading the, in studying the Bible. And he was a disciple of John Wycliffe. And he came to be taught all of, his, all of his tenets, and he agreed with them all. All of his articles. He said, yes, I am in agreement. And he published articles and he preached in the, the University of Prague. And there was, there's, a, there's a building that's still there, still there today. Um, that was, it's called the Bethlehem Chapel. You can Google it. It's great. It's beautiful. This you know, big square building. It's, it was ginormous for their age. They could seat over 3,000 people. And they would fill it. And he would preach the Bible. He would preach salvation through grace, by grace through faith. He preached against the doctrines of the Catholic Church, including indulgences, which is buying salvation. Because the Catholic Church around that time was so corrupt that they were even like, oh yeah, you can you know, pay us money and we'll guarantee your salvation. We'll save Uncle, Uncle you know, Harry and Uncle Sally for, for a small price. Set them free from purgatory. They preached that salvation was by faith, not by the Catholic Church. Now, because of Huss's trial, Wycliffe was, con- was later condemned as a heretic because Huss was espousing his teachings. And so put, it, sh- it shined light on Wycliffe's teachings. And they're like, oh, this is heresy. So, so because they wanted to condemn Huss, they first had to condemn Wycliffe. 
So they condemned Wycliffe, Wycliffe after, after his death as a heretic. His body was then exhumed, burned, and then his ashes were, were thrown into the Rhine, the, Rhine, the Rhine River. Huss refused to recant. He said this, Tell me or correct me through scripture and I will recant. Basically saying, prove it. I want to have a discussion with you. If I'm in, in, in error, I'm, I'm humble. If I want to be taught. I want to know where I'm wrong. Please, I've got this little bachelor's and this little master's degree and this, oh, this oh-so humble, non-important doctorate degree in the Bible. Prove to me by the Bible that I'm wrong. They couldn't. Because here's the thing. The, the Catholic Church was, and still is today, so corrupt that you could actually buy a priesthood. You could buy a bishop seat. You could buy a papacy. It was like, it was like buying a presidency or buying a senator seat today because of how much money you could get in your pocket and, who, and how, whose, money, whose pockets you could line. It was so corrupt then and still today. So basically the people who were questioning this official council of holy people were garbage who didn't know scripture at all. They didn't know the ways of Jesus. They didn't know the scriptures. They couldn't argue with him because they were dumb. They were ignorant of the Bible and God's ways. And that's why they didn't even try to refuse him, to refute his, his doctrine. The council condemned Huss as a heretic, to which he cried out with a loud voice as he was being led away. Lord Jesus Christ, help me that with a constant and patient mind, I may suffer this cruel and ignominious death. Whatever that word is. Ignominious ignominios, death. He uses very interesting words. <laughs> Whereunto I am condemned for the preaching of thy most holy gospel and word. And right before they lit the fire, he declared, this was the principal end and purpose of my doctrine, that I might teach all men repentance and remission of sins according to the verity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wherefore, with a cheerful mind and courage, I am here ready to suffer death. They surrounded him with, with wood and lit the fire. And as the, the wood was, was burning and he was singing God's praises and on the third repetitive time through, the wind caught the smoke and choked him and he could no longer sing. And they also then took his, his body, made sure they crushed it all down into the most fine ash as possible and collected it up, scooped it all up and threw it into the Rhine River. He died singing praises to the Lord Jesus before the smoke choked him. They then, so, and, so the word Huss, so John Huss, his last name means goose. So to which the phrase, his goose is cooked, came from. And you might, you know, you know who made it popular? Martin Luther. <laughs> Martin Luther, the great reformer made that made that uh the statement known but he essentially he would later read the writings of Huss and that inspired him it inspired him to look into the scriptures to study the bible to study where the catholic church went way off the rails and he became vehement and wrote a little thing called the 95 theses the majority of which was countering indulgences and the works of the papacy, which was also John Huss's big thing. 
He didn't, he didn't stir up the, the Catholic Church until he started to mock the Pope. And they were nonstop. It's easy to do. But Luther would, would later take all of Huss's ideas and, and the teachings of Huss and Wycliffe and the devotion that they had to salvation by faith alone, through faith in, in Jesus Christ alone, through grace. And he would also say he would start the Great Reformation, the Great Protestant Reformation, from which now we have our church. Without Martin Luther, but without John Huss and Wycliffe, we would not exist. This church would not exist. Because of their legacy, we can worship freely, like we do today. He also translated the Bible into the common language because it was inspired by Huss, by Wycliffe, and distributed it then by the Gutenberg Press, which they could not stop because they were printing thousands of copies of the Bible and spreading them all across Germany. They were limited during the time of Wycliffe and Huss because they could only do it by hand. But now with the Gutenberg Press, it was everywhere. Martin, I mean, Martin Luther would write these little pamphlets and spread them out and, and, and you know, teach about the papacy and indulgences. They took the 95 Thesis and spread them out thousands upon thousands upon thousands of these copies. Everyone had a piece, of, you know, had one in their hand. The, ba- the church basically went bankrupt because no one was paying indulgences because they saw it was garbage because they had in their hand biblical proof. They tried to, they tried to martyr Martin Luther, but God delivered him. He escaped. And he formed the church, the Protestant church. But there are stories upon stories upon stories telling of hundreds, thousands of men and women who have suffered and died for their faith in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There are stories today in many a part of our world of martyrdoms and persecutions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the way back to the very beginning, all 12 disciples were martyred. Except for one. Except for one but No. Well, yeah, two. <laughs> but, so let's go, just kind of go through these. Peter and, Paul and Peter were both executed in Rome. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen and it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. Andrew was crucified in Greece. Thomas went to India and started the Marthoma Christians, which still exists today. But he was run through with four, by spears by four soldiers. Philip was crucified after converting a pro, proconsul's wife. This would be like the station of Pilate. He was a proconsul. So he converted a, a proconsul in a Greek city, and he was crucified. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Simon the Zealot was crucified in what is today's modern Lincolnshire Britain. Matthias was burned to death in Syria. Mark died in Alexandria after being dragged through the streets by horses until he was dead. Luke, the author of the book that we're reading right now, was hanged in Greece. James the Lesser was thrown from the temple, the same place that Satan tempted Jesus uh, to jump off of. And then, because he didn't die, he was beaten to death. James the Greater was, was beheaded in Jerusalem. But before he died, the guards saw his faith and accepted Jesus himself and then knelt down next to him and was beheaded with him. I love, the, I love the gospel. Bartholomew was flogged or scourged to death. They tried. Here's, here's the one that survived. They tried to kill John. They poisoned him and boiled him alive in oil. And he was delivered from both. He's like, oh, this is nice. 
Yeah, I should create something like this. The hot spring. Hmm. This would be awesome. Just kidding. But he came out unscathed. Our faith is one of a bold history of devotion. Our faith is not for the faint of heart. Our faith is worth dying for. Not worth killing for. That's the main difference between what people perceive as Christian faith and what is actually Christian faith. That the gospel is in fact worth dying for, but not killing for. Peter indicates the reason for this great persecution. Preaching that this, this is what kicks it off. There's no other name, that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name other than Jesus Christ under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. It's a good day to stand firm. It's a good day to stand firm. We've been talking about it's a good day to what? The first one was to do good. The second one, one is to what? Speak truth. Because whenever you're given a chance, to, you know, whenever you're given a chance to do good, oftentimes that gives you a platform to speak, to, to preach why you did this. But often then you have to realize that when it comes to speaking truth, it's going to often result in having a chance, getting the chance to stand firm in that faith. Stand firm in what you just said. Stand, so that you stand firm in what you just did. And so today we are looking at that it's always a good day to stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's always a good day. Because it's always a good day to do good. Be a do-gooder, right? Don't be afraid to be a do-gooder. Make, being, make doing good great again. Right? And get an opportunity to speak the truth of Jesus Christ. Whether it's giving a homeless guy on the side of the road some money and then saying, I do this in Jesus' name. Be blessed in Jesus' name. Be provided for in Jesus' name. Be fed in Jesus' name. I'm doing this in Jesus' name. And then if the guy is like, oh, thank you. I bless you, my brother in Jesus' name or sister in Jesus' name. Or saying, bug off. We have to be ready for either one. But to stand firm in the ridicule. To stand firm because to stand firm in that. We firmly believe that there is no other name given to people by which we must be saved other than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so we're going to be looking at this great P word, persecution. Persecution is the silencing of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the silencing of the name by which we must be saved. In any form. It doesn't matter if it's external or internal. Are we persecuting the gospel by not speaking it? Are others saying, shut up, bug off, forget you? Because here, I mean, in our passage today, the disciples are not executed. They're threatened, right? But here, you know, because here the elders were afraid of the people because of the, what? The miracle. 
But here's the thing I want us to see, and that's why I'm talking about persecution and even going so far as martyrdom, because this sets the precedent. This is where the spark is lit. This is where the fuse is lit that gives birth to the full-on persecution and martyrdom of millions of Christians worldwide over the last 2,000 years. The council set a precedent here to put down the teaching in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They decided here and now that the gospel message must be persecuted. It must be silenced. Persecution is unbelief. And so this set forth this, this, this need um, to resist the gospel. But let's, let's look here. Because this is what, in, in the flavor of, of Jesus, they're asking for proof. Like I said, like tell us by what authority and whose name you do this. Give us your, the proof of your authority. As the Pharisees often challenge Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you permission to do these things? Jesus and the apostles' uh, ministries were both full of mighty wonders and signs. Let's look at a passage in in uh, chapter in Luke. So Luke chapter five. This is where the where the friends you know bring their friend to Jesus. He's on a mat and they're they're carrying him. They get there it's full, so they dig through the roof and let him down. And Jesus, what does he say? What? No, he says, your sins are forgiven. And you learn in Mark chapter 5, this is actually probably Jesus' house. You're probably like, oh my gosh, I have to read to that roof. Oh, your sins are forgiven? No. He says, your sins are forgiven. And what do they say? What do they, here it is. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, Why are you thinking this in your hearts? Where are you? Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk? Ah, but so that you may know that the Son of Man, now that's me, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. And he did. He's saying, which one's easier? For me to, t- to get, tell this guy to heal this man, which no one is able to do, or to tell this man your sins are forgiven, which is also no one can do. Act of God or an act of God. Which one's greater? So that you may know that I have authority to speak and do these things, to, to forgive sins. I'll do the other act that only God can do and heal this man right in front of you. Intentional. Because what happened with these Pharisees and, and scribes? Did they be like, Oh, praise God! Praise God Almighty! You are the Mashiach! No, no, that didn't happen. They decided to destroy him. Intentional unbelief is blasphemy. Blasphemy is the only unforgivable sin, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So let's look at that. Blaspheming is insulting the Holy Spirit, willfully denying the gospel when the Holy Spirit is revealing to the person that it is true. And it's also attributing the works of God to Satan himself. 
Blasphemy is when people are seeing the works of God and refuse to believe the message of God. As Jesus says in the whole, in say, the only unforgivable sin. Blasphemy is posturing yourself against the words and works of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These religious rulers had an opportunity in, with, before Peter and John. They saw the man healed. They saw the works of the Spirit. And then they heard the words of the Spirit through their preaching. And then in their questioning, they also gave another testimony. That we know that there's no other name by which we may be, must be saved than Jesus alone. They observed the works. They had the opportunity to believe in his name, have their sins forgiven, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God himself, who they believed was existing in the temple that they were having this trial in. And yet they hardened their hearts and blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. They set a precedent of unbelief. They set a precedent of blasphemy. And this caused a shift of allegiance. Because the church began out of a shift of allegiance. Right here we, have, we, have, we are turning a new page in the life of Israel. And in this moment, because before it had been this thing that could have reformed the whole Jewish nation. They, they, these religious rulers could have been like, yes, this man is healed. We hear the gospel. We repent. We believe in Jesus. We repent for killing him and murdering him. Oh, Yahweh, we, oh, Adonai, please forgive us and send us your Holy Spirit. And he could have come through the, the temple during Shavuot and just transformed not just 3,000, not just 5,000, but a million Jews. In Jerusalem, right now, could have turned to Jesus Christ, believed in his name, and Israel as a nation would never have had to go away. They could have become and fulfilled their mission to be God's light on earth, a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. God didn't have to send the Roman army in 87 to destroy them, it didn't have to happen. But they set a precedent of unbelief. They set a precedent of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. To follow Jesus is to shift your allegiances. To think differently about your very lo- the very loyalty you have for the nation you identify with. Because for them, this was breaking away from their nation. Their very religious identity and national identity. Israel's leaders were often, as we see in the, New, in the Old Testament, you know, all over, the whole thing is full of accounts of this, that Israel's leaders were often leading the entire nation astray to worship other gods, which, of course, brought God's judgment upon the nation, leaving a remnant, small remnant, who did not bow down and worship the idols or other gods, who valued worship of Yahweh, above and beyond loyalty to even their own nation. You're going that way, I'm out. I belong to the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of Israel. 
This is what's going on here. Peter and John were going against their own nation by refusing to obey these religious rulers. They were, in, in many of their minds, committing treason. Committing treason against their national identity by going against the accepted religious identity because they refused to fall in line and cease to preach in the name of Jesus, calling him their Messiah. Even in the midst of a miracle of God, like that of their forefathers and the ancient prophets, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, signs and wonders were being done in front of their very eyes. And yet they were still being judged. They were still being hard-hearted. And what happened? Things didn't go well for them. Things don't really go well for those who reject such signs. And they still rejected him. And the apostles, who are also now doing these signs and wonders themselves. So, like the disciples were saying, you are falling in line with all of your fathers who killed God's prophets. The Sanhedrin commanded them not to preach in the name of Jesus. To which they responded, what? Verse 19. Well, whether it's right in in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, we'll let you decide that one. For we are unable, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Like that darn FedEx arrow. Anyone ever seen the FedEx? See the sign? The space between the E and the X is an arrow. Like now that once you see it, you can never unsee it. Like, I'm sorry, I cannot unsee that arrow. I cannot unsee this. I cannot unhear this. I cannot unbelieve these things. This is now who I am. The coin is dropped from my mind to my heart. It has embedded itself in my spirit. So if you want to take it away from me, you're going to have to kill me. They had nothing to say in opposition. Why? Because the guy was right there. They saw the sign. They couldn't speak against it. Right? They found no way to punish them. But this is the thing about this moment as well. It set a precedent for the persecution of the, of the church, but it also pre- set a precedent for the church of how to respond to persecution. As we'll see, persecution and martyrdom became an ever-present reality from here on out for the church. Stephen and James will be killed in the coming months, as we read. And this will, will kickstart an oppression against the church that will become systematic for 300 years in the Roman Empire. And it still continues today around the world. We suffer as the church. We suffer. Or at least we ought to, if we're really doing our job. But here's the thing. Like the guy leading uh, that disciple to be executed, to be beheaded. Even in the midst of that persecution and martyrdom, God can still work and bring others to faith. That's what it's all about. It's about devotion. It's about love. We don't fight people. We fight by standing. By standing firm. By being devoted to Jesus. Peter understood persecution and would later die for, by being crucified upside down. So this encounter for him solidified his resolve. What does it mean when they crucify a person upside down? What's their purpose? 
He, so Peter just said, I don't deserve to die in the same way. And so they just flipped him, inverted the body. So think about this. Like he had just pre, you know just preached this massive you know sermon. His his resolve, like from being a coward to now being you know often getting things wrong. <laughs> right? Who sinned? Jesus is men or his father? Oh gee. Oh God, help help him. I know he's going to get better when the Holy Spirit comes comes on him, but give me grace. <laughs> I can just imagine just God, you know Jesus going, ah, oh, not again, Peter. It's like me with me with Jackson. Ah, oh, Jackson. Ah. Oh. oh, you're you're. It's a good thing you're cute. <laughs> you know. But this man went from that to preaching the most powerful sermon known to man. The three thousand just men, not including men, women, and children, and then three five thousand more. You have eight thousand just men. Come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now that's a revival. Tell about Billy Graham. He, Billy Graham ain't, ain't got nothing on that. Well, maybe he might. <laughs> he might. Maybe he might. But Peter understood that persecution, and so he, this was Peter, not just establishing his faith in the gospel, but his resolution to always stand firm in the gospel. In his first letter, he writes to the, the life of a Christian and exhorts us to live in the firmness of our resolve to both live the gospel and endure hardships because of the gospel. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 4. Listen to these words. Just, you know, maybe just put your Bibles down and just listen to these words as though Peter was writing to us to shift church, to the church in, this, in the Gallatin Valley, to the church in Montana. Listen to these words. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding. Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. He's done with it. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They're even surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living. And they slander you. They slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins, Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength that God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, 
don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory, glorify God in having that name, Christ. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? Right? Unbelief, blasphemy. And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. This is a mighty precedent for the church. A mighty precedent for the church that we live this life doing good, loving one another, serving the body, being hospitable, putting on all these good things, putting off the garbage that we used to walk in, putting off the, the, the stinking thinking and the old mindsets that led us into the, the crap that we're still, some of us are still dealing with. Put off those things that bring death. Put off those things that, bring, that we see in the world bring destruction. And put on these things that bring life, joy, flourishing. Put off isolation and put on relationship. Persecution, like we said, is the silencing of the gospel. So, anytime the gospel message is silenced, edited, quote-unquote, fact-checked, corrected, disagreed with, condemned, shadow-banned, restricted, suspended, account-deleted, friendships ended, uninvited, ghosted. That's a good one. It is, listen to this, you guys. Anytime this, any of this happens, it is persecution. The world's going to mock you for calling it persecution. Because in, in a lot of people's minds, even our own, we might be like, well, I didn't get beaten up. I didn't get slashed with swords. I didn't get acid thrown in my face. I didn't get run through with four spears. I didn't get hanged. I didn't get beheaded. I didn't get thrown off a, 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 a tall cliff or, the, or a temple or a building. I didn't get physically harmed. That's not persecution. Yes, it is. When you are rejected by your family, when, you're, when you have no more friends. And, uh, you know, I, I know a friend of mine who came to faith in Jesus a couple years ago. And she, she tried to hang out with her friends, but all of them stopped calling her. They all ghosted her, and now she has none of them. None of her friends talk to her anymore. Her family now rejects her even more. Because before she was an atheist, she might have still gone back to Mormonism. But now she is a Christian and they completely reject her. If you're liked by everyone, you're doing it wrong. It's becoming easier and easier to be persecuted these days. Because the, now the gospel message is not widely known or accepted. So our message isn't known. And so it's even more jarring. 
that's even more hurtful, if you will, to the world around us. It is more and more foolishness. The goal of the church is to live and expand the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The goal is not martyrdom. We don't, we don't like run to our faith or you know, run to death. We're like, yay, I want to be killed. Woo! I want to be drawn and quartered. Yay! Drag me through the streets on, with horses until I'm dead. Burn me! <laughs> the stultfus has been cooked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's not martyred our goal is not martyrdom but salvation the goal is not dominance we gotta conquer and you know, suppress everyone and rule over them like it became for the catholic church in the fourth century it's not dominance it's, it's presence we want to be present be in the world but not of the world being present in the world but not authority over the world Authority or darkness. The goal is not oppression, but freedom. We don't force people to become Christians. We cannot expect unbelievers to act like believers. We can't legislate our Christian faith into morality, into an American culture. It doesn't, it doesn't mix. Water and oil do not mix. You cannot force unbelievers to act like believers. The goal is not agitation. We don't run to piss people off. We don't like, like just you know, run and gun and like just take people off. It's not our, our, our goal to like make people upset. But it's, it's peace. The Bible, you know, Paul even says, like, as, as much as you can, be at peace. You know, we respect your governors, respect the government, respect your authorities, so that we may live long and peaceful in the land. Right? The goal is not cowardice and just having a personal faith that we just keep to ourselves. Not cowardice, but conquering. What does that mean, conquering? Conquer. If we are strong and courageous to stand, do good, speak truth, and fight against the spiritual forces of darkness. But how do we do that? By proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. By speaking it, by living it. We will see breakthroughs. We will see the Lord's signs and wonders again. We will see great victories, healings, salvation being spread across our land. Not because we legislate it, but because we're living it. We're speaking it. Each individually, not just me, y'all, us, the church, the church in the Gallatin Valley. You know who's responsible for spreading the gospel of salvation? You. Us. Me, you, all of us. That is what it means to conquer. We must seek God first. We must follow God. We must obey God. We must act and speak boldly in Jesus' name, which we'll talk about more next week. And the power of the Holy Spirit. What does the Bible say? It says all the time over in Revelation, those who conquer, those who conquer. He says it specifically to the churches. Conquering. The end times, like we talk about Revelation, <laughs> they're, not, they're not easy. 
They're not a cakewalk. They're not comfortable. We have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Write that down. That's good. Get comfortable with being uncomfortable. They're not, the end times are not simply something to be gotten through. They are a time to conquer. A time to stand. A time to do good. A time to speak. And a time to stand firm. In Jesus' name. So how do we do that? Let's figure it out. We've got to pray. Like we say, it says in, in, in 1 Peter, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. If you're hindered and cannot pray, there's something wrong. Your life needs to be re- readjusted. A non-praying life is a toxic life. And God can't use us. If we're not listening to our Savior, if we're not listening to our commander, to our champion, we can't be his champion in this world. We have to be sober-minded. We have to be alert, ready for prayer. So that when we're given an opportunity to speak the gospel, to, to do good, to speak truth, and to stand firm, we are ready. Because what do you say? Those who conquer. Look them up. There's like 20 of them in the Revelation alone. The one is my favorite. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which grows in the garden of God. Who wants to eat from the tree of life in the garden of God? Who wants to be given a stone with a new name? Who wants to live in God's presence? For all eternity. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not, oh yeah, you forgave my sin so I can be in heaven. That's your access to the good news. (laughs) Access to the good news is Adam was born as part of the family. God created Adam to be in the family of God with the angels in his presence, walking in the cool of the morning with God himself. But he fell and became even less than human itself. Less than God had created him to be. Not just emotionally or mentally or spiritually, but physically too. And so when we come to faith in Jesus, when we devote our lives to Jesus, to to Yahweh, we are redeemed. All of our sins are forgiven. and We're given the Holy Spirit. But not only that, but that Holy Spirit gives us reconciliation. We are given access again to be an adopted son or daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord. We're brought back into the family. The prodigal son is all about the gospel. We chose to leave, and, but we came back. And what happened? Where was the father? He was waiting on the porch. And he ran to his son when he, when he saw him threw his arms around him, put a cloak on him, didn't even let his son you know, finish his spiel. Right? Put his cloak on. Put the ring on, which is the authority of the family. He received back his inheritance and became a part of the family again because slaves wouldn't wear shoes. And what did he say? Put sandals on his feet because he is my son. 
We were rejoined, not as a slave of God, but as a son or daughter of God. So the gospel is rejoining God's family. And finally, restoration, that we, are, we will be restored to our rightful place at God's side in his kingdom with our restored bodies where it was in the garden. Thank the Lord. <laughs> new bodies, new minds, new spirit. Well, same spirit. But that is the goodness of the gospel. We will see him face to face in his kingdom and live with him forever and ever and ever. That's worth dying for. So that someone else can enjoy that same thing. Because this this life is so tiny, itty itty bitty, compared to eternity. Why would we waste a single moment of our life doing anything less than loving one another, being alert and ready for God to bring someone else into into faith in Jesus, to reconcile someone back into the family? Be ready. God will give you opportunity. God will give you the words. You don't have to worry about studying up and and learning all the words. Oh, I might say it wrong. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, He's going to give you the words. He's going to give you the love to give them. Speak the gospel. Do good. Speak truth and stand firm. That is the, the goal of our life. Go back again and read, read 1 Peter uh, chapter 4. I think you'll be encouraged. So, well, Let's pray and we'll, we'll spend some time around the tables. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your presence. You are so good. We pray your blessing on us. Help us to conquer in your name. Help us to stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be ready to take the the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever you want to take it. To make a difference in your world. To build your kingdom. Build your kingdom here, God. Use us and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.